0: We've been in the lower, uh, the Ten Commandments for quite a while, and in that, I, I hope that you've enjoyed it as much as I have. It's been wonderful to be able to look at at these, and you just realize that it's not just these rules that God gave to Israel thousands of years ago that, that uh, talk to what their culture was or their needs at that time, but what we've seen is that they're, they're core truths. There's these foundational truths that God wants us to see not only, you know, as a moral command, but as a principle that that should guide our lives, that should literally guide our culture. And so this morning, we're wrapping up and we're going to look at the 10th commandment. And we're going to see that it not only is kind of the last commandment, kind of wrapping up the series, but really, if we understand it properly, we see that it really wraps up our understanding of the whole 10 commandments. It ties it all together. And so with the tenth commandment is, and as given to us in Exodus 20:17. Let me go ahead and read it to start. It tells us about coveting: "You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's." And uh, it's very direct. But boy, there's a lot there. Let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we do have to come together this morning again to be able to dive into your word. Thank you for the things that you've taught me through this series and even this past week, Father, for the way that you're just stretching, I pray, all of us, Father, helping us to see not only what these mean, but what they mean to us. And I pray that your spirit would speak now this morning, Father, that no matter where we are coming in this morning, that we would hear what you have for our hearts, for our lives this morning. Father, seeing this not as a word from the past to a people in the past, but Father, as your word for us today, for our lives, for our hearts. I pray your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we look at this commandment, and, and it's a commandment against coveting. And, um, and if you look at that, you say, I, th- I think we are going to find it's not only hard to really keep, it's hard to even really understand what it means. You know, what is coveting? Is it something that is always wrong, that people agree that it's wrong? I think, Many people would define coveting as this idea that we're desiring something that you don't have. But is that always wrong? You know, we can look at our culture, and in our culture, this time of year especially, all the ads that we see are all saying, here's something you don't have, you should want it, and ideally you're going to buy it. Um, it, We're being sold covetousness throughout the whole Christmas season. So how do we respond to that? I think that many of us would, if we're honest, we'd have to admit that there's probably a store that we love to go into that we probably shouldn't go into because going into kind of stirs up those covetous feelings. Uh, for some people, it might be a large clothing store. You could walk in there, and, and but that does not cause me to covet. I can't say that I, clothes can be the issue for some people. It's not something that really, I don't dream about the right clothes. Um, I know some men love to go into Home Depot or to Lowe's. You know, you love to go in there, you see all the tools that you don't have, or you know, kind of the nicer version of the tools that you do have. And I'm not a really handy person, truth be told. And if I were to go in the store, I don't even know what half the tools do. So it it's really doesn't really appeal to me that much. Now, now, I have to say going to Best Buy, that might get to me a little bit more. You know, here you have all the latest technology and the high-tech toys. And you know what I really find amazing with that, though, is that I could walk in, And before I walk in, I could not even know something exists, and yet 15 minutes later, I think I need to have this thing to make me happy that I didn't even know existed 15 minutes ago. How does that work? I mean, take, for example, let's say if it's TVs. I could be totally content with my TV. You know, man, it's it's great. It's big enough. It's great. And then I walk in, and suddenly it's like, I didn't know they made them this big. Wow, what happened? And and not only that, I mean, I I thought high def was good. Well, this is 4K high def. and, And this one over here, it's not only plasma, it's crystal high def. I don't even know what those things are, but I need it. You know, man, that's gonna, because I, I turn on my TV and suddenly it's not that good anymore. It's a, how can I be happy with this? And what I realized is that I could go out and get the biggest, fanciest, newest TV, and a year from now I'll go into the same store and there's something that I don't have now, and suddenly I'm tempted to be discontent with even what I have. Because there's something about us. So we're gonna look at this and see, as, as we're started to see all these commandments, they're, they're moral commands, but they're more than that. But, To understand it, we've got to start by saying, what is the moral command? What is the thing it's calling us to do or to not to do? So what is the moral commandment here of Ben's coveting? And um, one of the things that if we think about it, this is different in one significant way from all the commandments that have gone before it. When you look at all the commandments before it, they all focused on our actions, on what we're commanded to do or not to do. This one isn't about an action. It's not about, you know, what is coveting? Well, that's not something we do or don't do. It's something we think. It's something that we feel. It's, it's not a behavior. It's a heart attitude. And, and so when we look at this, we say, okay, well, then what does that mean? What's being prohibited? And again, the struggle is we kind of understand coveting, but when's the last time you used the word covet in a sentence? It's probably been quite a while because it's really not an idea that we talk about or really think about. I think if I were to ask a bunch of people what is coveting, the most common response would be something along the lines of, it's desiring something we don't have, and, and even more so if it's desiring something that we don't have but somebody else does. And um, in fact, I looked up to Webster's definition, and it's right along those lines, to feel an ordinate desire for what belongs to another peop- another. Uh, to another. And so what is coveting? It might be another person. It could be a store, so I couldn't go in the store and suddenly I see what I don't have and they have it and I want it and I feel like I need it. And, or I, it could be a neighbor, a friend, a coworker. And it's not just limited to material possessions. So we think about things we can covet. I can covet another person's good looks. I can covet their success. I could covet their popularity. I could covet the relationship that they have. Maybe the number of kids they have. I could covet their health. I could covet their hair. I know it comes right close, close to home. You know, but I can do that, and, but the thing is, we can covet all kinds of things. And even if you want this kind of played out practically, a great place that we said last week is you, is you go to a nursery and you see how it plays out with young children. I find it amazing. You could have a bunch of toddlers walking around. There's a toy right here. A child has sat right next to it the whole morning, totally ignoring it. And suddenly, another child comes, starts playing with the toy, and the first child looks at it. And suddenly, they want that. And it's not only they want it. It moves from desire to coveting to stealing really, really quickly. Right? And we've all—anybody with young children—you've seen that play out, because there's something about our character. In fact. I'd say it's human nature, maybe it's even more base than that, because I'll show you another example of where it plays out. In this case, not a nursery, not even with people, but in an experiment done with monkeys, where you could have two monkeys where they're suddenly they're happy with what they have until you see that another monkey has getting something more than what the first one gets, and they suddenly become really, really upset. Here's a, here's a video of a little experiment, and I think you'll get the picture.
1: So final experiment that I want to mention to you is our fairness study. Uh, and so this, this became a very famous study and there's now many more because after we did this about 10 years ago uh, it became very well known. And we did that originally with capuchin monkeys and I'm going to show you the first experiment that we did. It has now been done with dogs and with birds and with chimpanzees, um, this, but with Sarah we started out with capuchin monkeys. So what we did is we put two capuchin monkeys side by side. Again, these animals, they live in a group. They know each other. We take them out of the group, put them in a test chamber. And there's a very simple task that they need to do. And if you give both of them cucumber for the task, the two monkeys side by side, they're perfectly willing to do this 25 times in a row. So cucumber, even though it's really only water, in my opinion, but cucumber (laughs) is perfectly fine for them. Now, if you give the partner grapes, the, the food preferences of my capuchin monkeys correspond exactly with the prices in the supermarket. And so, if you give them grapes that's a far better food, uh, then you create inequity between them. So that's the experiment we did. Recently, we videotaped it with new monkeys who had never done the task, uh, thinking that maybe they would have a stronger reaction and that turned out to be right. The one on the left is the monkey who gets cucumber, the one on the right is the one who gets grapes. The one who gets cucumber, note that the first piece of cucumber is perfectly fine. The first piece she eats. Uh, Then she sees the other one getting grape and you will see what happens. So she gives a rock to us, that's the task, and we give her a piece of cucumber and she eats it. The other one needs to give a rock to us. And that's what she does. And she gets a grape. And she eats it. The other one sees that. She gives a rock to us now, gets again cucumber. She tests the rock now against the wall, she needs to give it to us. And she gets cucumber again. (laughs) (laughs) So this is basically the Wall Street protest that you see here.
0: And I love that. You see how basic is this to nature? You know, is it natural, is human nature, whatever? And, and, you, and that's what we are. I mean, we're, I'm really happy with what I've got. I'm happy with my cucumber until I see the person next to me has a grape. And suddenly, man, I'm not happy. I'm not content. I covet. And that's something about who we are. And that's why God gives this commandment. As we looked at it last week, we saw that it's not just this desire, but what sets it apart because you know, the fact is, we can have desire for things that aren't always bad, but, but it's an intense desire. The word that the Bible talks about is, you know, is, is don't covet, don't lust. It really has this idea of an intensity, a craving, this idea that I desire something in a way that I, I feel I need to have this to make me happy. My life isn't complete. I look at what that other person, they're more happy than I am because they have what I deserve. And so it's not only a desire, it's a desire that I think about, that I dwell on, that I, that I resent, that I work towards somehow getting in one way or another. And so if you want to understand even what content or discontent or covetousness, it's, it's kind of the other side of it is discontentment. And so it goes right side by side. If I'm discontent with what I have, I will covet what another person has. On the other hand, if I become content with what I have, I won't be tempted to desire what someone else has. So again, we saw that it's like a hunger. It's a hunger, a desire to be satisfied. So that it's, when I think about physical hunger, I, I want to f- eat something and it fills me up. And, but what we need to realize is that that's a need that I have. Covetousness isn't usually a need, it's just a desire. And just like if I eat a meal, it it only satisfies for a short period of time. If anything, if I eat a big meal, it stretches my stomach, so I'm even more hungry. And that's the thing that happens here, is that coveting is an appetite that you will never fully satisfy or fulfill, apart from finding the right things. Now, okay, that's the idea of this moral rule. But as we've seen throughout the series is that while all the commandments are a moral rule, it's a principle, a rule that God wants us to follow, they're always more than that. God is not only trying to tell us what to do, our behavior, because that's, we can try to fake that by self-discipline. He's actually trying to dig, dig deeper and he's teaching a principle and something about dealing with our character. Our character is who we are and it's expressed positively. So when I have right character, I have righteousness. I'm doing the right thing that that by by itself really defeats the, the, uh, the temptation to do the wrong thing. And so what we talked about is, again, covetousness is related to discontentment. So the opposite of that, the positive character, is contentment. God wants us to have the character of contentment. Why? Because if I have the character of contentment, if I'm really content with what I have, you see, then I'm not going to be tempted to covet what other people have. And we saw last week one of the ways that we nurture that is through thanksgiving. And I think that's really important. Why? Because again, if I'm struggling with covetousness, with discontent, I can't stop myself thinking, okay, stop desiring that. How do I stop my desires? I can't. But what I can do is nurture an attitude of thanksgiving. I can't stop wanting something else, but I can make the decision to be thankful for what I have. And the more that I think about thank, gratitude for what I have, the more thankful that I become for God's blessing and provision in my life, you see, the more that I'm content with what I have and the less I covet. Now, that's kind of review of what we talked about last week in an introduction, but, but here's where I want to go deeper with this and say, okay, what is this principle under it all? And to understand the principle, we have to step back and say, how does this relate to the whole of the Ten Commandments? Now, we can look at this and say, oh, okay, it's the last commandment. Some people might see it as the least of the commandment. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't seem to be near as significant as murder and adultery and things like that. But here's what I want you to realize, is that it is by no means the least. In some ways, it actually is a summation of the whole. You see, as we talked about a minute ago, what makes this one different is this one focuses on heart, on attitude, on thoughts, not on behavior. And when it's dealing with this, what I was really dealing, going deep and saying, this is the heart attitude of all the other commandments. It's really a summation of all the other nine. It's, it's underneath it all. And let me show you this. Let me show you. It's right here in the wording of the commandment itself. If you go back to Exodus chapter 20, and we have the wording, what we find is the way that God gives us this commandment, his wording in giving us this commandment is somewhat unique, and it's even caused some confusion among some people. Look what it says, Exodus 20, 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything else that is your neighbor's. Now, why didn't God just say, you shall not covet? I mean, he just said, you shall not murder. He didn't tell us all the people we shouldn't murder. He just said, you shouldn't steal. He didn't tell us all the things we shouldn't steal. He just said, just do this or don't do this. Why is it that here he comes and he gives us this list? Look at it again. I want you to see that what he's doing here is he's actually reviewing the previous commandments. And what he's doing is he's saying, this is the heart attitude beneath the commandments. So, let's take the 7th commandment against adultery, all right? You shall not commit adultery. What he's saying is, unless you had an inordinate desire for your neighbor's wife, someone else's spouse, if you had a desire for someone you were not married to, you wouldn't ever break the 7th commandment. So, in other words, you have to break the 10th commandment first, and that leads you to to breaking the the 7th commandment. All right, okay, let's take the 8th commandment, stealing. Likewise, you wouldn't break the Eighth Commandment against stealing unless you, first of all, coveted your neighbor's male servant, female, his ox, his donkey, anything else is your neighbor's. We might not think about ox and donkey that much, but there's a lot of things that other people have that we would desire. And the fact is, is that my temptation to steal is always driven by dissatisfaction of what I have. I, first of all, break the Tenth Commandment against desiring things that I do not have, and that leads me always so then, you know, breaking, breaking the 8th commandment always is a result of, first of all, breaking the tent. All right, let's talk about what if I covet something big like my neighbor's house. Okay, well, well, that's too big to steal. I can't break in and steal that. So what might I do? Well, one thing I might do is that I might somehow try to steal it through false testimony. I might go in and somehow create a lawsuit against him or somehow create in legal terms that I can somehow swindle him from that. So what am I doing? I'm bearing false testimony. I'm breaking that commandment as a way of somehow fulfilling my desire for their house. Or, or maybe I, you know, I'll, I'll try to knock him off. I'll try to kill him to take something like that. So now I'm breaking the sixth commandment against, against murder. And what you see is that all of the commands are ultimately an expression of The 10th commandment. It's the heart attitude behind it all. And God is here drawing out this principle that is actually something that we've talked about throughout the whole series. And that is when we sin, it's not just a matter of breaking the rules. If we see it just as moral teaching, then here's a set of rules, and okay, I'm gonna try to do the rules. But what we've seen is that all the time, God is going beneath the rules, and he's saying, I wanna deal with your heart. See, because our actions are always just a physical expression of our heart. The reason I do sinful things is because I have a sinful heart. My sinful actions are always a natural outgrowth of my sinfulness. And God says, okay, I don't want you just to do self-discipline, try to hold back your sinful heart. I want to get in and I want to change your heart. I want to change who you are. Now, when we look at this, we say, okay, so what are we dealing with? Covetousness is the heart attitude behind all other sin." That's what God's trying to teach. Now, if you think I'm overstating it, let me put it in a different way and ask you a question. If you were totally content with what you had, what sin would you be committed or tempted to commit? Can you think of any? Can you think of any sin you might be tempted to commit? The problem is, is that no, we're discontent, and as a result, we covet, we covet, and all other sins flow from that. Every sin is, is at the core rooted in, not only covetousness, a disbelief about God. It's saying, God, you haven't provided for me enough. God, there's something that I desire to be happy. I need to be happy. And because you haven't done it, what I need to do is I need to go outside of your rules, outside of your provision, and somehow, through my own means, get it by my own effort. In fact, you want to see how deep this goes? Let's go all the way back to Genesis 3, the first temptation, the very first sin what is it about? It's about covetousness. It's about saying, God. And basically, God puts Adam and Eve in this garden. He says, you've got this whole garden to enjoy. You've got everything in the world. But this one thing, this one tree, I'm going to keep that back from you because that's bad for you. And so Satan comes and tempts Eve. And he says, did God really say you couldn't have that one tree? That tree is the best tree. That tree is going to give you wisdom. That tree is going to give you happiness. You can't be happy apart from that one tree. And so what happens is there is a lie. Satan can convince Eve and, uh, that, you know, that God was keeping the best from her, and for her to really be happy, she had to not be content with what God had given her. She had to be discontent, desiring what God hadn't given her, and therefore going outside of God's commandments to get it. Now, you look at that, what's changed for us? The only difference is what tree that we're going to. You see, it's the same issue. God has given us all these things to enjoy and yet in that, there's There's some things that are bad. Here's some trees that I'm restricting and it's the same lie. It starts with God isn't good. God's holding something back from me. I'm not content, so therefore I have to go outside of God's provision, outside of God's commands to somehow get it. Now, even as I was talking to my wife about this, she said, okay, well, that makes sense. How about the first couple commands, though? It makes sense with all the other ones. But, you know, how about having other gods before you? Uh, Don't make a graven image. And how does coveting work with those? For those that were with us in the very beginning of the series, you might remember we spent a lot of time in those, and we talked about the first and second commandment are the foundation. We talked about the Jenga tower and how you have this tower. Those are the bottom two blocks. If you take either of those out, the whole tower falls from the very bottom. But if you keep the first and second commandment in place, then everything else is going to work out. Everything else, it will be easy to keep all the other ones. And so now you're, and I'm saying, you know, well, the 10th commandment is the one that we have to keep and everything else. Wait, how does that work out? Here's what I want you to see, is the 10th commandment is really in many ways a restatement of the first and second commandment. In fact, all it's saying is that if you break the first and second commandment, it expresses itself in dissatisfaction and, con- and discontentment. See, let's look at it. Let's take the coveting and the second commandment first. All right, okay, let's take a moment to review the second commandment. It's one of the most misunderstood of the commandments. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before you. The second commandment, you shall not make yourself a, car- a graven image, a carved image. Now, here's what you have to realize. Some people get this confused. The second commandment is not a restatement of the first. Some people understand it to be the first one saying, you shall not worship false gods. And the second commandment, especially the gods that you make into a little idol or an image. And that's not what it's saying. It's not prohibiting worshiping another God who you make into an image. God is telling us, you shall not make me into an idol, into an image. The first commandment prohibits worshiping false gods. The second commandment prohibits worshiping the true God in a false way. It's about believing wrong things about the true God. And here's what we have to realize. When we think of an image, don't just think of a physical image. It's not just making a little physical statue. It's any kind of image, including a mental image. So we can make God into a mental image and break this, break this commandment. An image when we start to say, I think God is like this. I've always envisioned God this way, or the God that I'm comfortable with is like this. And what happens is that we start to redefine God to fit our own opinions, our own desires, our own lifestyle. We redefine him to fit our culture. And so suddenly we have this mental image of God. And we come to God and we kind of try to squeeze him into this mental image. And the Bible says, no, that's wrong. We can be guilty of idolatry in two ways. The first one is worshiping the false God and the second one is worshiping the true God but in a false way. Now, how does this relate to coveting? Coveting is always an expression of approaching God the wrong way, viewing him the wrong way, believing the wrong things about God because it's ultimately an expression of believing the false thing about God that he's not good Coveting always flows from a distrust in the goodness of God. Why? Because it's ultimately saying, I believe God isn't good and he's holding back the best from me. Let's go back to Genesis 3. What was the temptation? Did God really say you can't have the best tree? You see, it's not God has given you this command to keep you from that which will destroy you. God gave you the command because he's holding back the best. He's not good. He's not trustworthy. And so Adam and Eve fell into that temptation. Why? Because they distrusted the goodness of God. They had a false image of God. Let me take you to another passage. that teaches this ex- explicitly. James chapter 1. In James 1, he's been talking in verses 13 through uh, 15 about temptation. And he uses even the imagery of, of a fishing lure. And he says, you know, what happens is Satan will come and he will take our natural desires and he will twist them and lie about them in such a way to get us to, to, to put them too high and, and then to, you know, pervert them into, into sin. And so in verse 14, he says that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Using this imagery. Now, here's the image. You think about a fishing lure. It's It's all deception. You know, I, you know I, I, I'm not a good fisherman. Part of it is when I throw the hook out there and I say, here, here's fish, go bite the hook. They never buy it. They never, they, I, they never, you know, take my hook. I'm not good at making a lure look like a real meal. A good fisherman figures out how to bait the hook in such a way that they deceive the fish. The fish looks at it and says, that looks like a great meal. They go for the deception of what looks like a wonderful, easy meal. But in reality, it's a deception. It's all about a hook that's about to kill him. So he's saying, okay, that's what happens. Satan is all about deceiving. Now let's go to verse 16. And and remember, that's the context. It's the deception. Verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So don't be deceived, don't be deceived by the lure, don't be deceived by the lie. But it's not only don't be deceived by the lie, we're deceived by the lie, why? Because we're deceived ultimately by, about the character of God. You know what, the ultimate lie isn't just about the, the lure, the ultimate lie is about the character of God. It's, all temptation is based on a lie about the goodness of God. See, we forget that God is the source of every good and and perfect gift. So we sit there and we say, well, I know that's not really, that's against God's rule, but that's what's best. That's what's going to make me happy. That's what I need to pursue. And not only that, but it's not only that God is the source of every good and perfect gift, but what it's saying here is about the character of God is everything that is good and perfect that we really need, because God is good, he gives it. So in other words, there may be things that I want that I really feel that I need. And God said, I haven't given you that because you don't need it. It's not for your benefit. It's an expression of his goodness, even though we don't always feel like we like it. You say, well, wait a second. How about I've got this trial? I've got this crisis. I've got this isn't good. This is terrible. You don't know what I'm facing now. If you go back earlier in James 1, it says count it joy when you count trials. Why? Because God has a purpose. We don't always understand it. That's what makes it a trial. But there's always a good purpose, even in hardship, even in difficulty. And so what it's saying here is believe that about God. All of Satan's temptation is based on this lie. Don't be deceived if you start thinking that God isn't good, that he's holding something back from you. You see, then you're set up for the lie. So how does this go in the Second commandment? The second commandment is basically saying that you believe the wrong thing about God. If I believe that God isn't good, I've bought the lie, the wrong thing about God, or if I expect that God is going to be good, but He's going to give me all the things that I want, that's what makes God good. I believe the wrong thing about God. I've believed a lie, the God that I want there to be, not the God who is. And you see, suddenly then I become discontent with God's provision because God should do more than he's doing, and suddenly it's like, okay, well, if God's not good, well, therefore, I'm going to go outside God's provision. You see how it plays out? It's all, all, it's an expression of this, you know, break, we break the second commandment, it expresses itself in coveting, in discontent. Now, How about the first commandment? Okay, what's the first commandment? The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, Here's what you need to realize is when we talk about gods before you, it's not just about what we do in church on Sunday morning. It's not just saying, okay, don't worship Buddha, don't worship Allah, don't worship another god, worship the true God, Yahweh, Jesus. It's not just saying that. When we think about gods, the gods that we worship aren't just, it's not just a religious practice. The gods that we worship is whatever we put our trust in, whatever we put our hope in. In fact, the commandment literally translated is have no other gods in addition to me. And basically what God is saying is you can come to church on Sunday and then Monday you have another God. You have your worship God and then you have your practical God. See, our desires reveal what the true gods in our life is, what we functionally trust in. And if I go to church and I sing the right songs and I worship the right God in church, but then I go out Monday and all day I'm thinking about, okay, it's all about my work, it's all about my income, it's all about money. If I'm dreaming about success, if I'm dreaming about popularity, if, if what captivates my mind, I don't think about God until next Sunday, what captivates my mind is the pursuit of the promises of the world. See, that's a God that I have in addition to God. I have a Sunday God and then I have a practical, functional God that, is, that drives my thoughts and affections and all my, you know, I think I'm going to find security in that thing. So I break the first commandment. So then what does God call us to? What is the first commandment about? It's not about, okay, just, you know, bear your desires. Don't desire things. God literally is calling us to pursue our desires, but to pursue it in the right things, in the true God and the thing that was satisfied. So the way to battle discontentment isn't deny it. The way to battle envy, it isn't, and say, just, and hey, I'm just gonna be happy with that. I'm just gonna deny it. I'm not gonna think about it. No, that will never work. It's literally God saying, I want you to, I want you to pursue. I want you to, to, even in that discontentment, to find the thing that's gonna fill that hunger, that's gonna satisfy the deepest part of your soul. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this in Mere Christianity. He talks about just this whole challenge of desire. Uh, Listen to what he says. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger? Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire? Well, there's such a thing as sex. I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation, therefore, is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. That is, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. On the other hand, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a copy, an echo or a mirage. See, when God looks at us, he doesn't say, how dare you be discontent? What he's saying is you have a desire. The problem is that you're trying to pursue it in the wrong thing. And the thing is that you're pursuing it in something that's never gonna satisfy because it's only an echo of the real thing. We're created for a relationship with God. That's the ultimate thing that should satisfy. In fact, when you look in the Bible, what you see is not the Bible saying, you know, deny your discontent. It actually at times invites us to be discontent, to pursue something more than what we have. So for example, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is talking about all the things in the world that we would chase after, all the things that we would find satisfaction and, and security in. And then he says in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. These things are good things, but what you need to realize is that if you seek them first, it's always gonna fall short. If you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, if that's your pursuit, if that's where you fixate your dissatisfaction, that's going to satisfy you. And then you'll enjoy the blessings of all these other things as well. Or look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Last week we looked at chapter 4 where he talks about content, you know, the secret of contentment. And here's what the key of that. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already made perfect. Not that I'm happy. Not that I'm resting, that I'm totally content. But this I do. I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ made me his own. I have a discontentment and it's pursuing ultimately a relationship with Christ to make it my own in what? That Jesus has made me his own. And the more that I find my fulfillment in him and that relationship, you see, the more that I'm investing in, as it talked about in John chapter 4, the water that satisfies I don't have to keep coming back to and drinking again and again. That's the only thing that will satisfy me. See, again, God is looking at that. He's not saying, how dare you be discontent. The issue that God is looking at and saying, there's a discontentment in all our hearts, and he's saying, redirect your focus. You know, don't chase after the false gods that will always leave you empty. Instead, redirect your focus. Make me the true God, the first commandment. Have no other gods in addition to me. Let me be the true God. See, what happens is that we dwell on the wrong things and we think, the new job's going to make me happy or if I'm single, if I had a spouse or the right boyfriend or the girlfriend, well, that's going to make me happy. If I had the new car, if I had the new clothes, if I just had this, then I would have, that would fill the gap in my soul. And those are all good things. Again, Matthew 6, all these things will be added to you. You will appreciate and enjoy those. But if you're making those gods, little Gs in your life, they're always going to dissatisfy, and you're always going to see somebody that has more, and you're always going to pursue it because it's never going to fulfill you. And so God's invitation isn't, you know, deny yourself, deny yourself and be miserable. It's, it's you want to see contentment. Look what it says in, in, um, in, again, talking about it, hunger. Look what it says in Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that a relationship with him... That's what will fulfill the deepest need, the deepest hunger that you have. And when I covet anything, what is it showing? It's showing that I'm not doing that. The whole reason that I'm coveting is because I'm putting my hope, my trust in something else. I have something else other in the God space in my life. And because because this other thing isn't satisfying me, I'm chasing after it more and more. I think that I need more of this to ultimately fill this gap that only God can fulfill. So what you see is it all comes together. Now, how do we do this then? How do we find this? What is is the goal? If you understand it, you find what we want. We want contentment. We want fulfillment. We We want a life of blessing, even a life of, should I say, wealth. And, you know, the Bible says, the Bible says you want to understand that? It's not only in contentment, but the contentment that's rooted in godliness, in a relationship with God. It's it's ultimately godliness with contentment is the key to great wealth. And what does it mean when we say godliness? What it's saying is the key there is start with God in the center. And if God is at the center, if God is, have no other gods before me, in addition to me, if I have God at the God place in my life, and I believe the right things about God, you see, then what's going to happen is that's going to lead me to contentment. And look what it says in 1 Timothy 6. True godliness... God at the center leads to contentment with contentment and that is great wealth. And it's talking in the context of people that are looking to get rich and trying to find wealth and financial things and material things and he says, you want to understand wealth? It's, those things are good. It's not bad. It's not, but if you make a good thing a God thing, it's always going to disappoint you. Put God there at the center. And if we have that, we'll have everything. So now how do we do that? Practically. Let's go back and you say all the commandments, they're thou shalt, thou shalt not. If we think of behavior, I can try to do it. I can try to behave, I can self-discipline. But what this is showing is all of them are not about behavior, they're about heart. They're about not only what I do, but who I am. They're about my desires. How do I change that? Again, simply this, new behavior, I can through self-discipline, I can try to do it. New desires come from a new heart. A new heart is not something that we can do for ourselves. The only way to have a new heart is come to God and ask him to give us what we cannot accomplish. It goes back to the gospel. That's the gospel. The gospel is basically saying, I come to God and I say, God, I agree with you. I'm broken. There's things I can't fix in my own life. I recognize that Jesus died for me. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to not only forgive my sins, but to change me. And whether it's coming to Christ for the first time or for some of us that have had that before and we've wandered away or we've kind of gotten distracted and we're chasing after these different things that we put in God places in our life, it's coming and saying, God, I agree with you that, that I'm coveting, why? Because it's an expression, I believe wrong things about you or I have other things in the God space and God, I agree with you, I ask you to forgive me and I, I can't change those desires, all I can do is give you the right to change those desires and that's hard to do. Because these things are God things that I think I need, and it's really hard to let it go and say, God, I I give you the right to change those desires because you might take away the things that I think that I need. But it's not until we let that go. And not try to change ourselves, but give God the right to change us. That what happens, it's not about self-discipline, it's about giving God the right to change our heart, asking him to change our heart, And recognizing when he does, he changes us from the inside out. He gives us new desires. He gives us the desires that he wants to fulfill. Seek after the Lord, and he will give you the desires of the heart. Seek after him. Put him first, and he will give you the desires. Implant in you the desires that he wants to fulfill. And give you the content, fulfilled life that he longs for you and for me to live.